You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, The Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me as usual is ITK principal David Leach. How are you, David? I trust you are well. Um, Giles, I'm well. I trust our listeners are well. Uh, I've had a lot of angst uh, this week. Uh, thinking about the energy industry and uh, how we're not moving fast enough. But speaking of angst, I think uh, with our guest this week, uh, Giles, we're departing from the world of energy to an extent and delving into the depths of, uh, well, maybe not the depths, but the shallows of psychology. <laughs> yes, I'm not too sure whether they're shallow or deep. Or we're, but uh, certainly I think the energy industry might have fallen into the deep end on some of this, um, given the pushback against some of the transmission lines and now some of the projects. It's just been a bit of a feature. Um, you know, we once used to say that this was just the province of the Antis and the NIMBYs and things like that, but I think it's become a bit bigger than that. Um, and I think there's a sort of multifaceted and many things that the industry needs to think about, whether it's private or government. Anyway, David, at your suggestion, um, we interviewed um... John Pickering, the Chief Behavioural Science at Everton. And I'd like to thank uh, some of my inter- industry contacts for suggesting John. And what an interesting interview it is. It is indeed. Let's have a listen to it. Um, um, David starts us off with uh, John Pickering. Uh, John Pickering, uh, Chief Executive uh, of Everton and um, uh, expert in global uh, population change and attitudes. Thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Good to be with you, David. John, uh, I'm interested in the um, subject of, I guess, having the rural community, I think, uh, understand or how we can have them join us. Uh, and uh, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but I suppose the background, maybe the easiest way is for you to tell me a little bit uh, about Everton and what it strives to do. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I mean, it's uh, Everton's a behavioural science organisation. And so uh, I myself am a behavioural scientist. And what that means is, is forgetting for a second about the energy transition um, for a behavioural scientist that we would say that many of the biggest issues that the world is facing, and I would throw energy transitions clearly as one of those, essentially implicate the attitudes, the behaviours, uh, the practices, whatever you want to call it, of people. And, and the extent to which we can understand us as people and our psychology and what motivates us and do that with some precision is going to be pretty important when it comes to formulating solutions to things like, again, energy transitions, particularly when it comes to community acceptance, social license, things like that. And behavioral science, and I guess this is what I'd say that Everton does as well, is, is essentially the, the discipline that looks just at that, is look, how do we understand the behaviors, the mindsets, the attitudes of people across an entire population or across a community and weave those insights and that understanding into the solutions and the policies and the approaches that we're, we're undertaking when it comes to 
say, uh, community acceptance of, of large-scale renewables. So that's a bit about table size. Yes, and uh, I think you did some work that demonstrated the effectiveness of this in the uh, Cane Changer program in Queensland, and I guess evidence is evidence-based stuff, and whereas I tend to think very simplistically in terms of costs and benefits. In fact, if you look at something like, I think, Kurt Lewin's force field theory, you have to look at uh, uh, the forces of things and, and, and things like social identity of impacted groups become important. So important. And love to talk more about Lewin. I mean, his field theory you just mentioned there, David, I mean, that's, that's going on 70, 80 years old. And we, you know, a point to make there is that, you know, we know an awful lot about us people and how we think and what motivates us and and yet unintentionally or otherwise we we still make mistakes when we go to approach people to change their mind or to change their behavior or to win them over and it's interesting you know some of the work that we've done you mentioned there with the the, the great sugarcane farmers of queensland was an example of that and you know the the bottom line with that body of work is that even when there's many benefits co-benefits uh and so forth of a change of practice in this case for the farmers to look differently how they fertilize and so forth to improve water quality running out to the reef if we haven't understood those barriers to change and what's restraining people then the chances of success are, are virtually zilch and when i look at uh some of the general sort of concepts around this it is things like social identity and seeing that uh other people are doing the same thing uh, I guess when, when we look at the idea of social license uh, and understand that it is regional communities that this will most affect because that's where the transmission lines will be built, that's where the wind and the solar farms will be built, they get both the benefits and the costs and I guess they come typically regional backgrounds. This is an overstatement but my perception is from a relatively conservative uh, approach uh, and also an approach that it's their land uh, I guess how, how would you approach the, uh, the the general issue I'm not even sure exactly what the issue is but in I think that we have to get a, a, an acceptance that uh, some level that they have to be part of the it would be good if they were part of the process we can't really do it without them Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the issue here of group identity is massive. And, and what really, I mean, we can have lots of group identities as individuals. You know, the other night, many of us watching the, say, the Matildas play, that evokes a, a national group identity about Australia. And I'm on a sporting thing because it's, it's an easy one. Uh, a few weeks before that, there was a state of origin game, which for certain states in Australia means quite a lot. And you align with a, a state-based group. You can align organisationally. You can, you can align yourself as a group that's from a certain region even within the same state, that one particular area is totally different to another, even though it's only separated by 50 kilometres or something like that. And the reason that's so important in terms of all the evidence and theory and psychology is that when, when an in-group member perceives that they're being asked to do something or told to do something, in, in, in many cases, by a member of another group or the so-called out-group, it almost always ends in disaster. And that intergroup, I call it conflict, is maybe a little melodramatic, David, but that, that sense of group identity and, and where the message or the request or the requirement is coming from 
is is really significant. And so there's there's a whole thing I think we need to do there about breaking that down a little bit and thinking about um, how we bring groups together as part of this. Yes, and so if if we bring this from the more general concept into uh, something a, a particular problem. Um, getting acceptance for new transmission lines is something that not both of us, if we just accept that broadly it's a, it, it's a desirable outcome if we want to have more wind and solar farms, not even everyone accepts that, but if we just take that as, as a premise and then, you know, those farms have to go, those transmission lines have to be built on a whole bunch of farms covering hundreds of kilometres and people say, well, why shouldn't they be built underground? Uh, or why does it have to go here? Uh, and I'm getting some money, but it won't look the same. Um, how, how would you approach the problem? I think there's like, it, it, there's a sentiment issue here, David. I'm, I'm speculating a little bit. I'm weaving together my understanding, I guess, of the science here, but also my perceptions and anecdotes working in some settings around energy transitions and and the sentiment i'm talking about is this idea of like nimbyism you know the classic not in my backyard factor and that it's it's the easy cast to spell um or spell to cast i should say over groups of people uh when you know i, I guess what i'm trying to say is we need to think really seriously about moving away from that term and that concept because i think that's the root of part of the problem because that that nimby concept for me, and I'd, I'd be interested in, in perspectives on this, but it has all sorts of negative connotations wrapped up in it. And it implies that there's some kind of class of people or person or a community that is kind of anti this development or maybe anti progress or happy for others to be inconvenienced, but not themselves, or there's got to be an alternate option. And, and for me, the narrative there is that, look, essentially, this is a good thing and we're telling you or we think it is a good thing for you, this group of people, but you're being oppositional to it. And I think if we flip that slightly and, and we assume that that we start from a place that suggests that there are, there are legitimate reasons that people might oppose or have some objection to, say, a, a renewable development and that we want to understand what those are, and we start from that place and we prioritise that, then uh, there's a subtlety here, but I think that's actually quite profound because it, it takes away that presumption of this is, this is uh, what we need to do and, and where we need to do it and why we need to do it. And I might say that might all be true, that there's a, a serious issue, the, the, back, the backdrop to this about climate change and renewable transitions. That's, it's not about saying that doesn't exist. It's just about saying that we need to work with people from the get-go and not have those default sort of negative in my mind, connotation. Yes, but we've kind of almost uh, progressed beyond that. And so the second, in, in the sense that there are organised opposition to, to this now, and so uh, we have a group that's opposed and another group that's for, and so that's a kind of different situation, isn't it? Uh, and, and I guess associated with that, I kind of feel that the I, I feel uh, that there are like key decision makers in each group often that 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 lead group behaviour. Is that something that's that I sh is, am I likely to be right about that? Yes, definitely. The, the look the views of a group are often channeled through for whatever reason, practicalities and otherwise of one or two select people. 
that tend to be, if we were getting deep into the, the theories here, identity leaders. You know, they're the people that will speak on behalf of the group, they'll shape the norms of the group. And in turn, if you're able to modify their thinking as the so-called leader of that group, and that doesn't need to be a, a nominated elected leader in terms of the political sense. It can be a very organic type community leader, a prominent farmer, whoever uh, that has a, something to say on this issue. Then, yeah, they, they can express those views. And I think, you know, Dave, you're right. I mean, we're seeing the, the, this uh, increasing division in certain circles uh, when it comes to the energy transition, some of the, the, the developments. But I think about what's ahead and again, the whole scale and pace of change and so forth of what we've got to undertake over the coming one to two decades in particular. And whatever these divisions are now, they will be pale in significance compared to what might open up if we don't start to get this done more appropriately, I think, at this level um, to what we've got to achieve into the future. So there are things that can be done here, I think, quite differently. So if you were... Um... I guess also there's a local, before I get to specifics, there's a kind of local uh, things that can be done. And there are also national messages that, that are appropriate because you're, you, you specialise in population level changes. So I guess a question to me is how important is the, the national imperative, there's a war on type of thing, uh, as opposed to uh, this is what it means for you in your community? I think it, the, the, the more aligned we can be, the better. And, and I mean, it would be intuitive and obvious, I think, to the, the listeners of, of this podcast that when we have mixed messages and one state saying one thing or the Commonwealth saying another, and that just leads to confusion and uncertainty and then cynicism and all sorts of different things that can, that can creep up. And so that, that nationally aligned approach, which again, I would, would certainly not call myself an expert on, on policy analysis and so forth uh, across the nation, uh, but it seems to be all trending in a similar and positive direction, I think is a good thing. Um, but, you know, at, at, the, at the, the more local level, um, I think this, this, what we're seeing though, is a, an inconsistent approach to how we engage with communities, how we engage with individuals. And this idea of, of social license or what you could otherwise call, you know, building trust and so forth is, is really, it's not necessarily done well. And in, in, in some instances, it's barely undertaken at all, or it's some kind of what you might call perfunctory PR exercise that, you know, might rely on a few town hall meetings some Facebook posts some glossy brochures some incentives thrown in a cursory understanding of what motivates people with perhaps some faulty assumptions, like, for example, costs and benefits and why they matter and how much they matter. And it, it, it devolves into the sort of situations that we might be seeing with some of these opposing groups that establish themselves and become quite vocal. So yeah, yeah. And, and of course, part of the opposition comes from the colour of your political T-shirt. And, uh, uh, and when we talk about social identity, uh, a lot of people in the regions in New South Wales and Queensland in particular, and I think also in Victoria, uh, tend to have a more conservative political bent. And so I guess that's, that's a barrier. But you talked about all this superficial stuff What's the right way to approach such an important uh, transformation as this? Well, I think there's a there's a, a couple of things um, that we've touched on that are worth sort of re, re uh, visiting. 
you mentioned about Lewin and the field theory earlier, and just to explore that a little further, because I think it's it's fundamental uh, here, is what Lewin was on about, and again, this is his theory, it goes back, you know, 70, 80 years. He was saying, look, behavior or attitudes or our mindset at any given stage are in equilibrium between the driving and restraining forces, or the, the benefits and the barriers to why you might want to do something differently. And and those, those driving and restraining forces don't just exist at the level of the individual, but they exist in, in all the social, community, organizational, family life, everything around us that, that influences what we do. And that's, that's kind of the, the point A. But point B is he was saying that contrary to how we often by default think, it's, it's not the benefits or the driving forces that actually matter when it comes to changing behavior. And yet that's what we tend to default to. When we try and convince people, and you can think about this in your own life, whether it's your, in your family with your siblings or your partner, or it's at workplace or with your friends or, or something as big as a community-wide transition, we often default to, look, this is cheaper, it's better in some uh, matter of fact, it's better for the environment, for example, it's cleaner and so on and so forth. But unless we've actually understood what those restraining forces are and who the custodian is of them, then we're unlikely to see the change that, or the, the shift in mindset that we want to see. So that's the first thing that we've got to do is, is really hone in on that. And that can be difficult at times to move ourselves away from focusing on benefits and the science and the cell. And, and, and the second part to this, David, is that, look, to get at that, well, how do you do it? I mean, that's not an easy process. And, and, and the kind of the, the way I frame it for you is that there's a massive amount of science that's gone into why we need to even have renewables, for example, in the first place, let alone the technology and the infrastructure that's required to actually build and scale it right to the level that we need. But science there is incredible. What's missing is the equal effort towards the science of understanding the needs and priorities of people within a community, having a presence in that community and developing what you could call I've heard described as the infrastructure of trust around renew renewable projects. And that's something I think we should be exploring a lot more. How do we actually do that? And so you mentioned the restraining forces, and I guess part of this uh, force field thing in the, in the two paragraphs that I read uh, and the way you approached it in Queensland is to reduce the negative forces. But first of all, that uh, 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 and that that improves the balance. <laughs> uh, but first of all, you have to um, uh, understand what those negative forces are. And so, in general, how uh, do you just go out and, and talk to people? How do you actually do it? Yes, that's a big part of it. And we rely on on uh, in in right down to sitting around kitchen tables with people. You know, I've heard stories of, of I might have read this in a, in, a, in a paper or heard it anecdotally or secondhand, and so forgive me if it's, if it's not accurate, but, but certain um, farmers and others around the country receiving letters, you know, stapled or something to their, their letterboxes in obviously regional parts of the nation, um, advising them of the forthcoming uh, transmission infrastructure build and, and what's, what's going on. Um, you've, we've, got to, we've got to look at the whites of people's eyes here. You know, we've got to understand where they're coming from. And I go back to that nimbyism idea, why we've got to kind of remove that from our thinking is because we need to start, even with the weight of evidence and the urgency that, that this is uh, taking place, the, the backdrop of that, we've got to start by listening. We, we, we've got to start by turning up and, and firstly understanding a little bit about the lay of the land with the community, but then meeting 
uh, with the right people to develop this. And I think that's that's the most important thing. And it, some of the, the way I think about this at times is we think about large scale projects and construction projects of clean energy hubs and, and solar farms and wind turbines and hydrogen plants. The personnel required to do that is obviously quite large in terms of the resourcing, the timing and so forth. We should be having maybe not quite the same, but a similar approach to how we're resourcing, understanding and engaging with communities. And it's not a bolt-on or step 17 of 73 in some plan, but it's from the, the very outset. I'm just wondering, hi, John, it's Giles Parkinson here. Sorry, I, I came in a bit late to the podcast. I got my timing wrong, but it's been fascinating listening to you. Um, just on the, um, I've just got a couple of quick questions and hand back to David, but just uh, you mentioned those sort of, you know, plastic wrappings, those notices and plastic wrapping, wrapping sort of, you know, hung on gates. And I think that's exactly what happened to either a family member or an associate of Barnaby Joyce, which is probably why he's really hot under the collar and, and um, redder in the face than he normally is about these issues. And I think I mentioned on a recent podcast, sitting at the Clean Energy Council and hearing a very senior um, wind farm developer sort of talking about, well, of course we do community um, engagement. You know, we always go in there and tell them what we're going to do and how it will affect them. I'm just, I sat there and listened to this and I went, oh, well, there's probably a lot of things wrong with that sort of comment and that sort of uh, approach. Once hackles are raised, once that initial contact has been done in the wrong way, how hard is it to get? back to a proper conversation difficult but not impossible Giles and you know what we're dealing with there is, is, is a classic case of I think what's underneath a lot of this is loss aversion and loss of control and in that moment in that town hall or whatever it is even with all the benefits spruiked for everybody to hear and the, the employment that might come to town or the rebates that might be on offer let alone all the environmental benefits what what people are losing in that moment is control that, that's one of the things. It's about our land or our region or our right to do what we want to do uh, on our particular parcel of land or in our community. And, and this is wrapped up in part of our identity and not just like we were talking about a moment ago, just the group identity thing of the in-group and the out-group, but what it is to live in this place. It's part of our character. It's where my family grew up for many people or intergenerationally there's that linkage and it's, it's part of what makes us who we are. And we're, we're imposing from some outgroup where we need to get all this energy and what people might think is for the big cities and, and us in the regions are going to have to power that and be inconvenienced or whatever it is and, and dis, disrupt our character, our view shed, our sense of control, what our land is used for. Um, and, and I think those are the things. So what the only way to overcome that is to put the people that we need to adopt, let's call it, these, these well, the infrastructure or uh, the, the behaviours and attitudes that we need is to give them... To be the custodians uh, of the infrastructure. Sorry, keep going. That's yeah, yes, this self-determination. We've got to build that in. And, and, and that it's almost like a permission thing. And that's why we've got to start there and almost have on the table that, look... It, I know we've got big policy here and we've got, uh, there's a lot of work going on behind it that we need to support. And this, there's huge efforts there uh, about where that we can't just plonk solar and wind and all these things down willy nilly. They're obviously going to be very, very strategically thought through. So there are obviously clearly communities that are in the, in the line of sight here. We know that um, and they're really essential. So it's not, I'm not saying it's not negotiable, but it's like, what can we negotiate on? 
Yeah. And and how do we give people choice in this? This is this is really like a, more of an undercurrent too, because in so many of the sort of the things that I hear, um, opposing wind farm or solar farm or transmission lines or just transitions in general, it's not necessarily from the landowners themselves and all the sort of the issues that you've just talked about. It's also what you just mentioned before: this loss of control, this, this sort of feeling that people don't have power anymore, and a lot of it's about sort of freedom to make their own decisions. It's about not having control by either society or a government or or a group of people who've got different ideas and things like that. That seems to be, are we just seeing this now because the social media makes it more sort of visible um, or audible? Um, or is this is this something that's kind of always happened? Or, or is there something about what's happening in society now with all the different threats and the pandemics and the climate change impacts and, and um, you know, um, is this something that's been exploited by political movements um yeah no john it, i think the one way to think about it i mean social media is is like igniting this sense of social consensus one way or the other whether you're for or against and that, that might be kind of a false consensus i mean that's one of the things that we're starting to realize obviously about social media is that it portrays things in a in a matter of fact kind of collective way but it's anything but you know it's it's a minority viewpoint but it is elevated but what it does is it, it does it it ignites that sense of of consensus and it, it is a, a very effective way of gathering people around a common goal and so what happens is we have that town hall and there's that loss of control there's a there's a few key people that that obviously get quite upset about it and they're, they're motivated to maybe do some social media work or bring the community together and what they're doing is they're establishing a, a no identity so to speak they're saying not in our place for these reasons and then you're faced with this decision as an individual who actually you know what you might be open to it you might even be willing to look at it but all your neighbors now are saying hey we can't have this and they're putting the signs up in the front of the yards or you know properties and so forth and then you're faced with this situation of do i need to conform and if i don't conform with and i'm just hypothetically saying this this anti or no sentiment towards the renewable then you're an outcast and what does that mean and and there's stories and examples of that in other settings where where those that are, are not wanting to to go along with the the opinion can can find all sorts of social and community level troubles and they're going to, down to get their their milk and paper on a saturday morning and they're, they're finding themselves being stood up by their, their their mates, you know, because they're not of the same view. That's a classic sort of uh, union and holdout type uh, thing that's been a lot explored. I, I, I am uh, find, found very insightful what you said about the loss of control uh, that, and the threats that uh, landowners feel because it's my perception. My grandfather was a farmer and I grew up in a rural community and have friends on the farm. And, and, you know, like with all friends, you see their faults and their good sides. <laughs> um, uh, that, that farmers do really feel that they own their property and, you know, nothing should be done to it, uh, uh, you know, unless they want it to happen and, and unless you're invited on, in which case nothing is too good for you. And, and it is change. It does require them to, uh, particularly in areas like New England, which I grew up in, which has always voted for the National Party, the Country Party, and probably always will. And they have to accept something. Uh, they have to, if, they, if this is going to happen, that, um, that they have been told is not a good idea. Uh, so I think uh, working around that and understanding it is, is important, but what other suggestions, as a way forward, what would your suggestions be? 
Well, I think there's generally like a, there's a three part process here, which I, I I run the risk of making you know easier said than done. Uh, but you know, to 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 put it in these terms, I mean, the, the way we've got to start, we're just thinking about a blank slate here, where there's a community we've got to line up, and we know that for a, a number of reasons that this really is a prime site for um, uh, a renewable hub of some description. It's it's firstly, you know, what can we do uh, to from a, um, understand the, the lay of the land in terms of mapping the groups, the individuals, the community organisations that are present here? And some of that can be done through interviews, through there's a degree of desktop research, I guess you could say that could go about that, but we need to be in the community. And when we go in, this first step is about listening, as I said, and it's about the anti-nimbyism thing. It's like, no, 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 it's not... We understand that, that that sentiment is wrong. It's kind of like, let's firstly go there with a neutral and not trying to sell you something. Now, I'm not being disingenuous here because we know we've got a plan, an energy plan that might have identified this community. But at the same time, we need to, to do this together. So let's listen first. And as we're doing that, we're understanding those barriers and we're, we're tuning into them. And not just the barriers, but who is conveying them? What are the groups that are most vocal in this? And what are their needs and priorities and preferences within that. And this is a manual process. This is not something we do from afar, and it's certainly not something we fly in and fly out and do once. That's my, yeah. that's analysis, you know, which I, I love. I often wonder sometimes what the, whether analysts have a role in life, but you're telling me we do. And I, I suppose it has to come from senior people as well because they don't want to see some random consultant that is, you know, is just going to be here today and gone tomorrow. They want to, they want to hear from people at the top about why they should care. Exactly. And I think there's some really good examples of this happening around the nation. Uh, I know of one in Queensland, there's the Energy and Jobs Plan and some of the work that the Department of Energy is doing where they're bringing all of, all of the groups together that are relevant from the outset. And this is about, in this case, affected workers and various other things that are going on um, and going before we go any further, we need to bring the right people together and, and build this genuinely. And the thing about it, that third part, we've understood those barriers and so forth, but the third part is we've got to incorporate what we hear into some action that is demonstrable to people. How often do we hear that we've turned up, we've gone to the, the town hall, we've fitted, uh, filled out the online form and nothing? And, and the reality is maybe something did happen, but it just wasn't communicated back. So we've got to have a very... Uh, methodical approach to how we and genuine approach to how we're actually incorporating that analysis and those insights into the development. I'm just wondering if we can um, talk about something sort of slightly different, sort of slightly different transit. So another key part of the energy transition is the transition to electric vehicles. Now, here you're not really talking about sort of putting wind farms or solar farms or um, transmission lines through various people's regions. You're actually talking about a change of behaviour. Uh, which affects everyone because it's a major consumer product, but there's also infrastructure that's involved. What are some of the lessons that we can observe from here? One from maybe previous transitions, you know, from the horse and cart to the to the original car, um, because once again, you do see resistance to the technology per se. Um, you do have these issues of freedom of choice, um, yet we also have this imperative um, if you accept the, um, the the climate science and either just sort of health assessments of sort of the dangers of diesel and, and, and petrol emissions to um, to the community um, of actually transitioning. What, what can you observe or suggest uh, along those lines? Well, in this case, it's almost like a technology curve, isn't it, Giles? And we've got this situation with EVs where there's the interplay of the availability of the product, the price of the product, 
the effectiveness of the product, and this this could be transposed, uh, if you will, back to the, the horse and cart type scenario, these things would also have been relevant. And that curve essentially, uh, depending on the variable of interest, brings the, the price down, for example, the effectiveness, and by that I mean the range uh, of vehicles and the infrastructure available to support charging and those other uh, pragmatic considerations. And that tends to drag the the community with it, along with a, a set of policies that may incentivize behavior, for example, price offsets or reductions of tax or other things that, that different governments make available. Uh, and then, of course, you you've, uh, eventually have a situation where there's just purely more choice um, of electric vehicles compared to combustible uh, petrol uh, type engines. So it's it's really, it's, it's not so much a matter of fact, but that one, um, it almost relies less on in some ways, the voluntary um, drive of people insofar as, no pun intended there, but uh, the, the, the sense of people coming around to the um, idea of an EV could well line up with that technology curve of the price, effectiveness, logistics, making it more viable. Right. And, and I guess that's one of the things where sort of you get this resistance sort of, sort of dictates from, from government. I mean, we kind of admire some governments were saying, you know, Norway, for instance, saying, well, you won't be able to sell um, any petrol cars from 2025 onwards and other things. Um, yet we've seen sort of transitions in the past, as you sort of mentioned, the technology curve itself. I don't think any government came out and sort of banned, banned landlines, for instance, um, you know, by some date and said, you must all have mobile phones, but pretty much that's what's happened. Um, can those sort of policy dictates be counterproductive? They can be. I mean, it's a very complicated area. This, um, but you know, I mean, in the case of of uh, in this case, we're trying to promote more of a positive behaviour. Mm. Uh, Why that is the, the the purchase of a of an electric vehicle. In this situation, I think by and large, policies are going to be a positive. Uh, anything we can do in that regard. Where we see potentially the opposite effect, and again, this is a contentious field to say the least, is when there's policies to try and reduce behaviour. So a sugar tax might be an example of this, right? Where we're trying to reduce the amount of sugar consumption across a population and sugary drinks and all those sorts of things. And what is the merit of a sugar tax? And there's clear data in certain jurisdictions where that has worked by certain metrics. But then people say, well, what we've actually seen is an offset in some way that people have gone and done more of this other thing in lieu of the of the sugar because it's taxed so high, which is actually worse. So uh, I mean, the specifics there that, that um, could be worked through another time, but we do see a bit of both. But look, in this case, I think that uh, it's a positive interplay between policy and behaviour. So, John, uh, you you said that really as much effort should go into the behavioural side of things as into the uh, economic side and science side of things. And of course, you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree to an ex I do agree. And, and I think you're also making the point that the you need your psychology and behaviour and needs to come at the beginning and to be thoroughly integrated and, and, and you know and right into the into it from the from the beginning uh, what to what extent do you actually observe through your business that uh, and through your community that this is actually happen I know that we have at, at government levels nudge departments uh, and such and stuff and those sort of ideas but the more 
broader idea of social identity and and trust uh, and and the need to get uh, people who understand people involved right at the beginning is your is it a growing business? I think the the discipline of behavioural science is really growing, and you, you're very right to point out nudge units and so forth right across Australia and many other countries that uh, talk about behavioural science, behavioural economics. Um, the reason why it's so important, if you look at, I mean, the, any case in point, but the energy transition is clearly one of them. All of the things like the technologies and the infrastructure um, incentives, all all of that really sits in that driving force side of the equation in back to uh, Lewin's model it's it's in people that we are likely to find the most potent potential restraining forces it's people's decisions about adopting a certain mindset or or infrastructure or technology or whatever it is that we're going to probably hit the biggest hurdles and there's a science to that as well of course I might add and so it's for that reason that uh, I don't know whether dollar for dollar there needs to be the same investment in the people side of things, but at least conceptually, and that there are well-established ways of how to do this in complex settings that involve regional and urban environments and really kind of thorny problems that have political overlays and, and whatnot. But it, there are definite headways that can be made. And also, Giles mentioned uh, this idea that social media is kind of identifying your ability to belong with a t-shirt of some color uh, and and one of the things the internet does is to let you find people of similar interest groups uh, all over the world and, and, and belong and to cut yourself off from other groups that uh, you intuitively feel are going to give you messages you don't want to hear uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff that reinforces the way you think and a lot of stuff that questions the way you think and you know, generally, if you have to question yourself all the time, uh, uh, unless you've got an unusual personality, uh, you don't like it. So, how do you think about how society should should manage that? That we achieve the <laughs> right level of uh, discussion, and then, but also national identity and togetherness at, at, at some eventual time, decision time. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, you hear all the time. I mean, the, the phrase I think is most commonly used is how social media and whatnot can be a, like an echo chamber uh, for people that get on and they just continue to hear the same kind of thing over and over again. I mean, the behavioural scientists take on that is probably more along the lines of it's confirmation bias. You know, people are biased towards seeking out the views, perspectives and so forth that are likely to accord with existing beliefs uh, at the expense of all else. And it's, it's, it's often not even necessarily a conscious thing that we do. Um, it just it just kind of happens. Um, and so, you know, there's uh, just as a connected to this, but slightly disconnected uh, point is that the, the dangers of social media on so many levels, especially in the mental health of young people and young women in particular, is just starting to become realized with some um, very, very large scale research. And it is devastating. Uh, and now we're seeing the acceleration of policies in schools. I know Queensland recently, I believe New South Wales as well, looking at banning phones in, in the schoolyard or during certain hours. The US, um, one of the major groups over there, recently put out a proposal to uh, pull uh, phones, smartphones in particular, out of schools uh, full, full time because of the damage this is doing. So it's real. Uh, and so we need to, and there's many different examples of that, um, but from a behavioural scientist point of view, what we would always be urging people and for 
for all of us to consider is how have I tested whatever my perspective is, perspective is thoroughly um, in terms of the opposite or opposing view. And it's that discipline that we all need to get into the habit of. And that's probably the most effective thing that we can slow down and take the time to do that. So we're getting to the end of uh, uh, our time. Giles, is there something that else that you wanted to ask? No, it's been a fascinating discussion, actually. I've, 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 I've enjoyed listening to it and, uh, and partaking in it. But um, yeah, so I, I, I guess the big question is, um, and you do hear a lot of developers spending an awful lot of time I, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to people I said how do you get that project off the line they just said well we talk to people and we talk to people and we talk to people again and some of the people we talked to we went there about 20 times and um, and we got there in the end and I just think that those for those sort of projects that's the that's the effort that many of these developers are just gonna have to put in and you know I, 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 I it worries me, and I think David's mentioned it before about some of the transmission lines, which just seem to be these very complex and you know potentially very divisive projects, often been run by sort of state authorities or whatever, and they just don't seem to have either the motivation or the resources or the skills to actually do the work that's actually required. Mm. And that that's the, the the perhaps the concern is that. This work, which is so critical, this infrastructure of trust concept, that it it devolves to a group of people that within a particular department or within an organisation, whatever it might be, that are exceptional in their capabilities, but perhaps under resourced for whatever reason, they're not necessarily have a background in behavioural science, and 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 then we have this cascading effect of of getting into these awkward moments like the town halls with spruiking the benefits and and all of that plays out. So we need, as I said go back to the beginning and bake this idea in and get the right expertise around the table from the very beginning. And, and, you know, good luck going to the Australian Energy Regulator and saying that we want to increase our costs by 25% to, to get the people side of it right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but John Pickering, uh, it's been a fascinating uh, discussion that we've had this morning. I've been so much looking forward to this and I hope we can discuss uh, the people side of the transition a lot more and have you back again at some stage. Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you, Giles. Thank you. And uh, that was uh, John Pickering, a uh, behavioural expert from Eviden. Um, David, yeah, look, I found that a really fascinating conversation, actually, um, a change of pace from what we normally do. But um, food for thought for a lot of people. I think so. And a reminder to myself not to go, uh, as Bob Dylan used to say, hyping and typing people uh, and, and not to uh, put them into categories, but to understand that sometimes what they say and what they do reflects things that they uh, can't even necessarily understand all that well themselves. No, look, that's right. And look, it couldn't be more crucial. Um, you know, in this day and age where we're trying to build um, transmission lines across the country, we're trying to create new renewable energy zones, we're trying to increase the capacity of wind and solar multifold. Um, and I think people do kind of forget sometimes the very basics um, and of Giles, dealing I, with communities. Yes, indeed, they do. They do. And, and I, I actually agree that we need to focus on the people side a lot more. I mean, having said that, it would be a big help if the big uh, gentailers would actually, you know... Uh, actually do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do something. About... Do something. <laughs> 
<laughs> talking about the yeah, I mean, you talked about your angst at the um, uh, at the start of this podcast uh, before the John Pickering interview, and um, you had a right royal go at the uh, at the big Gen Taylors, and you rightly point out that um, I mean they account for basically you know two thirds, three quarters of the electricity generated or the demand or the supply in in Australia. They've done um, sweet FA really when it comes down to it in, in in transitioning. Even when they've announced coal closures, they've done pretty much bugger all to make sure that there's enough bulk capacity um, to go there. Yes, I think it's it, it, there's been too much focus on getting firm closure dates for the coal and not enough about what these guys are doing to play their part in, in bringing forth new supply. And uh, I try to point out that batteries, as wonderful as they are, are not new supply. They use supply that has to come from somewhere else. Uh, and um, really, Well, at best, they redirect it, I suppose. Well, they or retime con- it. <laughs> they, they, they retime it, but they are net consumers of energy on balance, right? Mm. You, for every uh, one kilowatt hour that you put into a battery, you only get, uh, you know, 0.8 or point something out. So uh, in the end, we have to have a lot of uh, renewable electricity coming from variable sources for the batteries. And, and in that regard, quite frankly, uh, AGL, Origin and Energy Australia have been a complete dead loss. They are the ones with the most capacity to, sell, to um, write PPAs because they've got the customer load. Uh, uh, they are the ones with the balance sheets that would support it. Uh, they are the ones who can afford to take the time to develop all of this stuff and to have a big portfolio. And they have consistently refused for a variety of reasons, all of which I guess I can understand. But the bottom line is they have consistently refused to do their part. They are completely drag the chain. Yeah, I'm not too sure what can be done about it in the future or as we go forward. Will they suddenly wake up? I mean, I guess, um, I mean, Brookfield have talked so much about um, about what they intend to do. Um, should they win the takeover of, um, of Origin? I mean, they talked about $30 billion in new investment. They've talked about 12 gigawatts of new capacity by 2030. They've signed a couple of MOUs with the likes of um, Reliance. And there was another one today, I think. Um, you know, talking about manufacturing in Australia, which would probably be a good thing if it can be done competitively. Um, well, well, you know, is, is that what we need? A change of ownership, basically. I, I do think in, we do need a, uh, some committed uh, owners and management, people who share the same sort of vision that, say, Neoen has, or Tesla has, or Next Era in the United States has. I mean, there are any number of examples of companies around the world who are actually embracing the transition and see their opportunity to make their fame and fortune and a, a very good return for shareholders out, out, of, out, of, out of enabling it. Uh, but uh, rather than acting as incumbents and trying to milk every last dollar out of their, out of their coal generation, which has frankly been terrible for the share prices of AGL and Origin, in my opinion, uh, uh, so that that's on on the one side, but on when you talk about the local manufacturing, I, 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 as you know, I've always had a little bit of a question about that. I think uh, you know if you look at the global wind industry, the fact that the wind turbine, the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, are doing as poorly as they are, is partly down to the local content rules. Uh, and and we can have a long discussion about that, but I think it makes it very difficult. We will never be able to compete in terms of subsidies with the United States or with China 
we just never will. Even a country like Great Britain won't be able to compete on that level. Even Europe will struggle to compete. So, But, the, but there on. must be some argument, though, that if we're going to build tens of tens of gigawatts of new wind and solar, not just to sort of get our grid to 82% renewables and beyond, but also to sort of, you know, uh, serve all those other industries, the green ammonia, the green hydrogen, uh, even if it's not for exports, it's for green iron and things like that, then I'm sure it would make sense that we would almost have to have some sort of local manufacturing capacity. I think it grows, Giles. As I've said, I think the most obvious thing to do is to do some a bit more downstream processing in the lithium industry, for instance, making lithium hydroxide uh, rather than just mining the so-called uh, spodumene ore. And I think if we do get... I mean, we could have an industry developing wind farms. Don't Never mind the equipment that goes into the wind farms. We could actually have an industry of people that go out and negotiate. People that you could have a, a company that wants to, for instance, dominate a particular renewable energy zone and, and goes out and essentially owns that, like Westfield might anchor a... Uh, might get Coles or someone to, 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 to anchor a shopping centre. I mean, there are... Uh, there's that side of things uh, that we can do on on the manufacturing. I think manufacturing means different different things to to different people, mm. is what I would say. Well, I did actually. Where did go? I went to see the opening of a factory. Well, the opening of, a, of an empty building um, this week in Port Kembla. It was for the hydrogen company Hisata. Uh, this is a spin out of the University of Wollongong. It was kind of interesting uh, listening there. They're getting twenty million dollars, another twenty million dollars from Arena. Um, they are claiming a world leading electrolyzer technology, which is twenty percent more efficient than any comp competing um, uh, hydrogen electrolyzer technology which means, uh, and one of the advantages of that is that you need less wind and solar to put into the electrolyzer to create the hydrogen. And because there's less wastage, you've got less waste heat, so you need less balance of plant, and that enables you to get smaller modular units. So they're quite excited. Um, it was interesting talking to the people there, um, kind of like a who's who in the hydrogen industry. Um, we talked with Alan Finkel, Dr. Alan Finkel, um, a month or so ago, and he was sort of talking about the reality check that hydrogen has had. It's probably not going to be in cars, it's not going to be in houses, but there are certainly places for it to be in hard-to-abate centres and in certain industries and things like that. And I had a good chat to him um, the other day uh, about that, and it was interesting that that's pretty much what people are thinking, but still very excited about the possibilities that, you know, with a groundbreaking hydrogen technology, the ability to manufacture... 100 megawatts or or a thousand megawatts even um, of electrolyzer capacity a year at this facility in port kembla um that's, so that's, that was actually a good sign that things were advancing yes indeed uh, giles and what do you think is i mean i've been at the smart energy storage conference that uh, i attended on friday you know which was a pretty well attended conference uh, and a lot of uh, people there who've thought deeply about the topic. And one of the issues that came, came up a lot was, you know, at the moment, the government is, I think, willing to listen to ideas about how to support the industry. And as you know, at the Clean Energy Conference, there was a lot of talk about extending the Renewable Energy Certificate Scheme past 2030. And I think on the SREC, the small scheme, the question is whether household batteries could be included in the scheme. But I guess what I see is that both, and we, we discussed this with Dave Roberts, that both of those schemes end up passing, making electricity prices higher because those subsidy costs, they're not really subsidies, they're transfer payments paid to one group by another group of electricity consumers. 
and it, and they also disadvantage people, the large group of renters that can't take advantage of that sort of thing. Whereas in the United States, we've had these uh, tax credit systems rather than certificate schemes. Now, they're less economically pure. They do make the budget deficit uh, worse, if that matters, which I personally don't think it does too much. But what they do is they act to lower electricity prices. You know, when, when I look at, uh, say, an aluminium uh, uh, smelter, my favourite topic, uh, and see that if it goes to the United States or a fertiliser company, it can get uh, electricity at, at 10 or 15 or 20 US dollars a megawatt hour. And here we're looking currently at 60 or 70, even, even with... Um, uh, or 50, and, and I think we could do a lot better if we had tax credits uh, uh, rather, than, rather than certificate schemes, and particularly when we get to the small-scale side of things and remembering the contribution that household batteries were supp are supposed to make in the integrated system plan, five gigawatts we're supposed to get out of them, if we could just give that a bit of a push along uh, by making, say, 50% of the cost tax deductible at the household level, uh, then I think we would do a lot for employment, a lot for resilience, uh, and, and a lot to make um, uh, uh, the world a better place. Well, it's interesting because I think the Hydrogen Head Start um, campaign, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the $2 billion that's been assigned to that, I think that's kind of going to be based on some sort of production credit, isn't it, or a tax credit, or did I get, did I get the arse end up? Actually, Giles, you know far more about than me about the topic, mate. <laughs> Well, that's a bit of a dangerous place for me to be because I don't know much. But look, if that's the case, then that that could be a bit of a um, bit of a tester for the um, for the government as they're going forward. Because I know that Chris Bowen does um, like to think about these things quite deeply, and I'm sure that the inflation reduction component of the Inflation Reduction Act would have to be a very very attractive component of any incentive to try and get renewables built out to the 82 percent and even beyond and um, so that sounds to me like it's um, very much worth thinking about and giles we've talked a lot this week already haven't we i think we have i think you're winding me up there david and i'm happy to do so uh, thanks very much for for john pickering from evident to um for joining us um and talking about behavioral science and um and what have you and i hope everyone sort of um, got something out of that um thanks to you david thanks to all our listeners out there for your support and your feedback thanks of course to our sponsors pylon and evergen for your ongoing continuing support and i do wish to point out some of our other podcasts that we have the solar insiders podcast um uh this week about or last week about solar tiles which is interesting uh the driven podcast is finally back after about a month's absence uh, this time talking about electric boats and there's a great series from and Delaney um, on the uh, Switched On podcast, which is talking about electrification, some fascinating interviews with uh, Stephanie Unwin, for instance, from Horizon Power about how Esperance um, was given a year's notice to get off gas uh, because the gas company was leaving and how to electrify everything and um, some other great interviews with uh, Tim Forsey and others. And uh, that's well worth tuning into if you're doing lots of dishwashing and gardening and driving around the place and wherever else you have, wherever else you like to listen to your podcast. David, that's it. Thank you very much. We'll be back again next time, this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.